It's the Jenny Hatch Show at Colin, and today my son Jeff is on my mind. He is our third child, our oldest son, and he is having a surgery today. And um, so his dad and I have been praying for him and sending him lots of loving energy, praying for the doctors and the nurses and the staff, hoping for the best and just planning that he'll have a easy time recovering. We always try to think positively when we have these types of experiences in our family. I am not one to doom and gloom, and neither is Jeff or his wife. They are stalwarts and faithful, and we love them so much. I did want to spend some time today here on the show reading the story of Jeff's birth. It was a triumph for me as a mother, and it's chapter three in my book, A Mother's Journey. So if you like a good story... This is the story of my son's Jeffrey Paul Hatch's birth. Jeff's pregnancy, oh, I titled the chapter, You're Fired. Jeff's pregnancy was the first one I had where we didn't experience any major stress. We were settled into our little two-bedroom apartment, had a wonderful, simple schedule, which revolved around the girls. I was happily teaching childbirth in my home, with Allison nursing in my lap, I walked every morning and was very involved with church service. My always increasing network of friends made up mostly of stay-at-home moms that I met at La Leche League at church and the community homeschool support group. I also was friends with fellow childbirth teachers and they were all my strength and joy. I had successfully nurtured Allison I'm 100% breast milk. Without losing my mind, she was not interested in solid foods until I became pregnant with Jeff when she was 17 months old. I didn't really intend to nurse her through the pregnancy. I tried to wean her many times, but she would always become very sad and then get a fever soon after these attempts. A few months into the pregnancy, I finally just relaxed and let her nurse three or four times a day. Pregnancy journal entries, and the, just side note, these are the actual entries from my journal that I kept when um, I was expecting my son. And this book is made up of mostly journal entries from the pregnancies of all of my children. So the date is August 7th, 1993. Now I understand why I was so whacked out, I'm pregnant six and a half weeks along. I'm also feeling much better since my new plus arrived as a product from Sunrider. It was tough there for a few weeks. I felt just terrible. I hope I haven't hurt the new baby at all. I know I wasn't getting enough protein. These past few days, I've been trying to get back in the habit of lying down for two hours a day and have started eating meat again to make it easier to get my protein. If I'm going to nurse through this pregnancy, I have to eat Extremely well. Shackley and Sunrider will help volumes. A note on Shackley products. When I was six months, when I was six, my mother was expecting her seventh child. She struggled with varicose veins and the stress of so many children, as well as poor nutrition. Her mother, my maternal grandmother, had just been told that she had six months to live. 
Grandma's 25-year battle with arthritis was coming to an end. Grandma went to a health food store and bought the book, There Is a Cure for Arthritis. Next thing I knew, she had thrown out her wheelchair, was juicing every vegetable in sight, and every time we children would visit, she would whip up protein shakes and pop vitamin C into our mouths. About this time, my mother discovered Shackley, and the two of them started a network marketing business together. Mom morphed into the local health food nut. This was the 70s, and as a family, we entered into the happiest season of my childhood. Shackley products have always been a part of my life ever since. I have used these great products all throughout my life, from the environmentally safe cleaners, water purifiers, air purifiers, to my favorite supplements. Shackley products are the best. Jeff was built on Shackley protein, fitness, physique, Vitalia, and performance. I would make a shake every day in soy milk that contained a whole cup of one or more of these foods. It is interesting to note that after the birth of her seventh child, my mom regenerated herself with Shackley foods and dance aerobics for five years and then conceived her eighth baby at age 39. She went on to have her best pregnancy, a quick natural delivery, and nursed Emily, my baby sister, with no problems until she was six months old, as well as run the household, take care of seven children, and serve as a bishop's wife. Emily is the healthiest of her eight children and a living testimony to nutrition and exercise. Although my wonderful Grandma Drake is no longer with us, her legacy of health goes on in her Shackley business, run by my Uncle Bill and his wife for the past few years. I've been an active member of their group, and we are always looking for new people to share these wonderful products with. And then I gave information for how you can join Shackley in my group. December 31st, 1993, another journal entry. Happy New Year. Both of the girls are asleep. Paul is flipping channels, and I thought I'd take a minute to write down my goals, my goals for the year. Don't get psychotic. Stay sane. Do not use drugs for mania. Focus on health. Don't get depressed. That about sums it up. I'm excited about the baby coming in April and have no real plans for the year except having the baby, staying emotionally well, staying out of debt, and being a good mommy. March 22nd, 1994. A letter to my baby. Dear beloved baby, it's been a wonderful time, baby, and I just know you were prepared in heaven to come to the earth at this time to help prepare the world for the Savior's second coming. I am so curious to see your face, to learn your personality and hold you in my arms. Please know how happy I am at this special time to be a righteous woman in the Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom. I feel so blessed, so nurtured. So many ministering angels have been my constant companions during this time, mortal and immortal. Not that I've had any visitations from angels or seen any spirits, but I do feel heavenly spirits in our home, ministering to our family as we grow and develop, protecting us from harm and encouraging us when afraid. I have also felt the dark side around the edges of our life, looking for a foot in the door, trying to tear us down and pull us apart. But we just continue on, fortifying our home, ourselves, and our girls, testifying, teaching, and trying to get strong and stay strong. 
how hopeless mothers and fathers who don't have the gospel must feel at times. I know this feeling occasionally comes knocking at my door, but I just beat it back, trying to keep the perfect brightness of hope and stay focused on keeping us physically, spiritually, and emotionally whole. I love the Savior. I love Heavenly Father. And I testify that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I know they love you and are concerned for your well-being. I know that if you will be righteous and faithful, they will protect you and give you all that you ever desire out of life. I hope you can learn to live after the manner of happiness. And if Heavenly Father will allow me to stay here to help you learn that manner of living, how happy I will be. I love you, little one. Love Jenny Marie Hatch, your mommy. And again, just a side note, I experienced a postpartum psychosis after the birth of my first daughter. This incident is covered in depth in my book, A Mother's Journey. And I share all of the details of what happened to us, why I think it happened, and then what we did to heal from it. And so that's available on Kindle if you'd like to go read it. And here's some more of this chapter from the same book, uh, Jeff's birth story. And this this is titled The Birth, and this is not from my journal. It's just, It was written in 1999, five years after he was born. Sometimes in life, we have experiences that teach us what we are made of. Jeff's birth did that for me. I was very concerned about postpartum emotional issues. But my number one concern was accomplishing a VBAC which is a vaginal birth after cesarean. I used the same medical practice that I had for Allison's birth, and all of the doctors were very supportive of my choice to birth vaginally. And I know they did the best job possible to help me. The problem was they have certain assumptions about due dates and post-maturity that conflicted with my teachings in the Bradley method. Dr. Bradley states that it is completely normal for a woman to produce a baby from seven months to 12 months gestation. Yes, a 52-week pregnancy is normal, especially if that is a pattern in the genes of the ancestors of either the mother or the father. My grandmother had a 44-week pregnancy with my dad, and my mom was notoriously late with her births. I believe the post-maturity issue is one of the most fumbled parts of our current birthing scene. Granted, there is a small percentage of women who have trouble if the baby stays in too long. These women should focus on nutrition and exercise in future pregnancies. I believe it is damaging to interrupt nature, and inductions of any kind are usually unnecessary and damaging on the emotional, spiritual, and especially physical level for mom and baby. Research I've conducted the past few years has led me to believe that Pitocin is a huge cause of post-maturity. Evidence suggests that with each pregnancy, mothers are more and more likely to need to be induced if Pitocin has been used in former pregnancies. The receptor sites in the brain, which take up the hormones to start labor, have a tendency to be damaged by this artificial stimulation of labor. More research should be done on this nasty drug that is given in one form or another to women during childbirth, either to start labor 
or clamp down the uterus after. Another problem with inductions is the need for episiotomy. During a natural birth that is not augmented, hurried along with drugs or the rupture of the membranes, shortly before birth, the mother's body is flooded with the hormone that allows her cervix and tissues to stretch. This stretching is aided by good nutrition and careful treatment by the doctor of the perineum as the baby is emerging. If mom is induced, this stretching does not happen. Almost all women agree an episiotomy is the worst part of any birth. The cutting of the vaginal muscles and the ripping that can extend all the way down to the rectum is one of the most feared outcomes of hospital birth. And yet, with the induction rates reaching an all-time high in the recent past, the doctors perceive the episiotomy is necessary because that tissue just won't stretch. It probably would have stretched if they had just waited patiently for Mother Nature to kick in. Jeff's birth and the emotions around post-maturity issues was the event that finally made me turn my back on medicine for my births and prenatal care. I felt this way. If I was going to the doctors for prenatal care and all they were checking for was signs of toxemia, gestational diabetes, and high blood pressure, and I was eating well enough that these signs of nutritional deficiency were not a problem, why bother going? Even if they diagnosed me with toxemia, for example, they wouldn't treat it correctly with nutritional changes. They would just freak out and put me on bed rest and a low-salt diet. And if I happened to go overdue a month or so and spent the last weeks fighting them on how to proceed, why bother using them for the birth? Wouldn't my time be better spent napping or eating or playing with my children in the fresh air? If I was only going to them because of fear that I would all of a sudden become nutritionally deficient, wasn't that dumb? And if I could feel confident giving birth at home, wouldn't that serve me better than feeling frightened they were going to do some procedure during the birth or after that would permanently harm me or the baby? These are the thoughts that I was having all during Jeff's pregnancy and postpartum. I tried to communicate well with my doctor, but as my due date came and went and she started talking inductions, I had a feeling that things might just get out of control and I would end up with another C-section. We called a local midwife and started entertaining the idea of a home birth. The midwife said to have lots of sex, three times in 12 hours, to get my labor going. I had let the doc perform a non-stress test and ultrasound just to buy myself a few more days. She had given me a deadline of Monday, the 19th of April, which would be 42 weeks from my last period. On Friday, we tried our own induction with the sex. By evening, I was having steady rhythmic contractions every four to five minutes. They were strong enough that I couldn't sleep, but I was not serious yet, and so we stayed home for the next 48 hours. This marathon of labor was one of the most challenging experiences, experiences Paul and I had, have ever had. We were constantly praying to know when to go to the hospital. We knew that the minute we checked into the hospital, the clock would start ticking and I would have about 24 hours to produce the baby. I had a secret hope that we would just deliver at home. And so we sent the girls to a friend's home and we stayed home and labored together. I walked, bathed, danced, stretched, 
and just tried my let to let my uterus do its thing. I was able to catnap a little, but I never slept or dreamed until a few hours before Jeffy was born. We checked into the hospital on a Sunday night. I was dilated to four and completely effaced. I prayed that we would have a good nurse. One hour after we checked in, in the, checked in, the shifts changed at 7 p.m. and my angel arrived, sent to me straight from God. Our nurse had been a practicing midwife during home births in her native country. She was a sweet Filipino lady who had recently been hired by the hospital, and she was the buffer between the hospital and us. My doctor arrived at 11 p.m. and told me that if I didn't let her break my water, she would send me home. She said I had been in labor too long, and it was time to get things going. She had no idea how long I had been in labor, because when I arrived, they asked how long I had been contracting, and I just said, a while. I just wanted to get in the hot tub and relax, but she wouldn't let me until she broke my water. My Bradley teacher training had taught me that breaking the waters before seven centimeters dilation could allow the cord to prolapse, and breaking the water and then getting into a hot tub could be maybe cause infection. I was curious why my doctor didn't understand these issues, or if she did, why she didn't seem to care that a harm might result. I also knew that keeping the water intact would give me a much more comfortable labor. Something snapped inside of me when she started pulling her little power trip. I stormed down the hall, shaking with rage and anger. I walked right up to her and said, in front of all the nurses, I have tried to work with you. I let you do a non-stress test and an ultrasound, even though I didn't want to, because you were afraid I wouldn't go into labor. You know I want to have a natural birth with no procedures. All I want is to get in the hot tub and relax. You are fired. I do not want you to come near me while I am in labor. I do not want to see you. I want you to call your partner, Dr. H, to come and deliver this baby. She said, he is on call. And I said, I know. And I raced back to my room. When I had checked into the hospital earlier that night, the male doctor was the one who checked me in. I had asked him if he was on call that night, and he said he was. I honestly don't think I would have entered the birth center if he hadn't been able to be back up to my doctor. I probably would have just gone home. My doctor had just had a baby six weeks before, and although I felt connected to her and liked her, I was very uncomfortable with her medical interventions and power tripping the last few weeks of the pregnancy. I really think she should have taken a few months off to nurture her baby. I think she wanted my baby to be born quickly so she could get home to her baby. It was funny, but I felt from some of the nurses, you go girl, as I was relieving her of her duties. Doctors sometimes forget we are consumers and they are working for us. I had a very hard time calming down after that confrontation and I do not recommend firing anyone while in labor. But taking control of my own birth was very empowering. And I was grateful to my nurse that even though she witnessed the conversation, she did not mention it again, but had an attitude of, let's get this baby born. She called my new doctor, told him what had happened. And he said to let me do 
what I wanted. So I jumped into the huge hot tub with my sweetie and we got all cozy and relaxed and let my body do what it was designed to do, give birth without drugs or interventions. At about one o'clock in the morning, Paul just about collapsed from exhaustion and my wonder labor support persons, a married couple who were friends from church, took over massaging my back and coaching me. Sometime after, I went in to take another shower and when I came out, all three of them were asleep. I chuckled to myself, so much for husband coach childbirth. This was my favorite memory of the birth though. My friend had brought two dozen roses with her and as I danced and swayed and sang lullabies to calm the baby and I, I would walk over and sniff the roses and pray. It was Heavenly Father, the baby, and the beautiful scent of roses. And that was enough. Actually, it was perfect. I quickly entered transition. This is when my birth team and my beloved nurse made it possible for me to have a natural, spontaneous birth. I had no idea a transition of three hours was possible. And when it started, I was excited because I knew the baby was coming soon. Shelly was born after about an hour of transition. So that is what I was expecting. But Jeff wanted to take his time. I've had a few women take my childbirth class who also had long, hard transitions. A few of these were VBAC mamas. And I have wondered if the birth after a C-section is made more challenging because of so much negative memory in the tissues of the body. Also, women who have had abortions sometimes have difficult transitions. And I've again wondered if during the hormone rage that is transition when so much is happening in the body, these images and memories of past trauma to the womb make it more difficult to give birth. I had fabulous coaching during these, this three-hour span, and they all massaged, nurtured, and helped me along as if we were this machine smoothly functioning doing a great work. Paul would leave to eat or use the restroom and my friends would take over. That time is a blur to me as I was crying, upset, facing all my demons of fear and pain. The biggest fear, of course, was the fear of another C-section. But I know it was three hours long because we timed it. The sweetest memory of my lover during this time was one point when I was in the shower and I felt really scared. I asked Paul to sing to me. He started in with, I am a child of God. He put his mouth right next to my ear and softly sang to me, lead me, guide me, walk beside me, help me find the way. Then he followed with some more primary songs and hymns. It kept me so filled with the spirit to have this wonderful music during the most difficult time of the birth. I would strongly recommend music over drugs to help with the emotional turmoil of birth. At five o'clock in the morning, I came out of it in a clear emotional state. My friend looked at me and said, are you back, Jen? I laughed and then said, I'm tired. I think I need a nap. So our friends left to go home to check on the children. They had left our daughters with their two sons and a friend and I fell asleep. Paul was my protector during this time. I wouldn't let anyone disturb me. My nurse came to check me. When she found out I was asleep, she quietly closed the door and left. This illustrates her understanding of natural childbirth 
and her honoring of my instincts. I believe the time between transition and pushing is another fumbled part of hospital deliveries. As soon as a woman hits 10 centimeters, she is usually forced to push, whether she feels like it or not. In Bradley, we are taught to listen to the body. And if the mother isn't ready to push or feeling the urge to push, we believe there are still important things happening that are not visible to the eye or that are able to be gauged with a machine. For some women, it is important to have some food at this time. In my case, I needed to sleep, dream, and rest before I could do the important work of pushing my son into the world. And I believe my nurse honoring that need was a gift because not too many nurses would have allowed or encouraged me to sleep. If you haven't figured it out by now, nurses have a great deal of control over what happens in birthing rooms. I think during many births, they are even more influential than the doctor, who usually doesn't show up until after transition. So instead of giving your doctor the third degree in his labor management style, go on a search for a hospital that has a few nurses educated in natural spontaneous birth and then request one of them to be with you. You can also request a change in nurses if you feel uncomfortable with the one that has been assigned to you. Uh, and just an insertion here, there are hospitals that are designated baby-friendly, mother-baby-friendly hospitals. There's not too many of them, but if you are one of the people blessed to live in one of those communities, I highly encourage you to go to one of those hospitals to give birth. Uh, you can also hire a doula to, or labor assistant to come and help um, navigate that passage, uh, sometimes chasm between you and the staff. They have proved really beneficial in many birthing situations. Here's the rest of Jeff's birth story. When I woke an hour later, I took a shower and I was squatting down in the stall. I felt the urge to push. I didn't tell anyone because I knew that once I did, I would have two hours to produce the baby before they pulled it out the forceps or the vacuum extractor. As my whole labor had been an exercise and endurance, I just quietly started pushing and working on my perineum with the olive oil I had brought. I would get a washcloth hot in the shower water and then gently place it all around my bottom. I did this about 30 times during the next four hours. This is one of the huge benefits of not having an epidural during transition. Mom is able to stand, walk, squat, get in the shower, and do those preventative things that will protect her perineum from tearing during pushing. At 7 a.m., I said goodbye to my nurse, and another took her place. The new nurse was a good reminder of how fortunate I had been to have my little midwife nurse with me all night. She was all no-nonsense, by-the-book, overmanaged, control freak, let's-get-that-baby-out, fear-based, typical. She immediately hooked me up to the monitor. The other nurse had just been using a Doppler every 15 minutes. She declared she couldn't get the heartbeat and said she wanted to break my water and put in an internal monitor. I asked her to call my doctor first. For some reason, she would not call him. We sort of butted heads for a few minutes, and then she called my doc. When he checked me, I was eight centimeters and Jeff's head was fully engaged. It was about 7 a.m. The next three hours were the most emotionally draining part of the birth as we struggled to keep this nurse 
with her little bag of drugs away from my body. At one point, she looked at me and said, I just don't think you can do this. We videotaped the birth, and one of the funniest parts is that we caught her on tape reading my birth plan. The look on her face was really memorable. Complete skepticism of all my plans. She was also the childbirth teacher on staff and taught all those worthless hospital obedience classes. I don't know that she was threatened with me being a natural childbirth teacher. I just know that the energy in the room was very negative when she came in. Why didn't I fire her? I was tired of firing people, and I just knew if I could keep her little crochet hook away from my amniotic sac, we would have a wonderful natural birth. Paul was great, and he just kept praying and coaching as I contracted. I would take off the monitor every time she left the room and go take another shower and work on stretching my perineum. When I contracted, I would dance and moan, and Paul would rub my back. We got most of this last hour of the birth on video, and it's fun to watch. Between contractions, I was talking and joking. As the time neared for true pushing, I started feeling the urge to push at the peak of each contraction. I had Paul call my friend to tell her to bring the girls over. We had spent hours preparing our daughters to be at the birth, and it looked like they were going to make it. One of my favorite parts of being a Bradley teacher was teaching the sibling preparation classes for all the older children. Shelly wanted to be around the birth, but she had informed me that she didn't want to watch the baby be born because she didn't want to see all that fluid coming out. I had really missed the girls during our three days of labor, and I was excited to see them. The final half hour of the birth was just fun. I was pushing in a full squat with the squat bar. The girls arrived, and they brought love into the room. They decided to take a walk with my friend Kindy, who was six weeks away from having her first baby, when they realized the baby wasn't born yet. My doc showed up and he was great. He kept joking. The nurse finally accepted this birth was going to go the way I planned and stopped her fear-based comments and negativity. My water broke on the third to last contraction, but he was crowning, so not too much water came out. Then his head came out and with a final push, outslipped his body. I was able to immediately nurse and he latched right on. Allison, age two, had come in and watched the birth. Shelley wanted to stay in the hall until he was out. After I nursed him for a while, I handed him over to the pediatric nurse. He weighed 8 pounds, 14 ounces. Then she casually called out his gestational age, 37 and a half weeks. What? Immediately, the full reality of her comment came into my mind. All of that fighting and stress and worry and fear and emotion was for nothing. He was actually early not post-mature, I was slightly peeved. The whole post-maturity racket is not science. It is all fear and control. Doctors know that if they induce four women, one or maybe two of them will need a C-section, which means more money and more control for the doctor. It would have been difficult for my doctor to stay close by all night long, yet is that, that is what my body needed in order to have the baby naturally. I hope parents who read this will think about that when they are told they must induce or the baby will die, the baby won't die. But the doctor may miss a night of sleep or a game of golf. Doctors get paid lots and lots of money for the work they do. If they haven't realized yet that babies tend to come late at night, 
maybe they should find a new line of work. Actually, I believe about 90% of the world's obstetricians could leave the profession and mothers and babies the world over would be much better off. While it was empowering to have a VBAC, Jeff's birth was the final straw for me. Three days of labor was very difficult, and I think had we allowed him to come when he was ready and not done our natural induction, I would have had him a few weeks later, no big deal. I felt that I had used the medical profession for three births, while I was grateful to the miracles for the miracles I had experienced during all of my births and the three healthy children in our home, I was ready to leave the fear-based world of medicine and forge my own path. Before I finish up with these postpartum journal entries, I think I'm just going to insert here that when Jeff was a child, he had this thing of not wanting to go anywhere. And as an illustration, one time we went to the library, ready to go. He didn't want to go. So I said, you got to come. I was holding the baby, the book bag, you know, you got the diaper bag. I had arms full, but he wouldn't come. He wouldn't come with me. So I had to do this thing where I threatened to leave and then he'd come. So I'd be like, okay, you guess you can stay here by yourself. Started to walk out the door and then he, was, he started to cry. And somebody at the library came up to me and she said, are you abandoning your child? And I said, I started to cry. He won't come. I don't know how to get him to come. I, don't, I didn't have a free arm. You know, instead of judging me, why don't you just pick him up and help me? But um, he wouldn't come. And this was a pattern all through his child. Jeff, we need to go to church. Don't want to go. Can't get him to get in the car, you know, and just have to physically pick him up. And I have so often wondered as this scenario has played out over and over and over during this child's life that, you know, was that imprint of him not being ready to be born and us and really the rules of the hospital compelling him to come out? Did that shake him in such a way that it became a pattern throughout his childhood? I don't know. My mom's intuition tells me there's something there, maybe something that should be explored by somebody, but um, it definitely was a big part of his childhood that he eventually grew out of, but so frustrating for me as a mom to have this defiant little man. No, he didn't want to go anywhere. And then when we would get there, he didn't want to leave. So, um, you know, very stressful. My next entry came a month after Jeff was born on April 19th, it was May 29th, 1994. I've been thinking much about how I want to remember Jeff's birth. And I have decided that rather than focus on the perceived injustices of things and the few negative things that came up, I will instead share the spiritual highlights and miracles. And I said, unfortunately, I never finished this entry. I was busy. My husband was serving at church as the young men's president. I had two babies on the breast, tandem nursing, three little kids, and I just didn't have any time. So the next entry, a month later, June 24th, 1994, the more children I have, the more demands I have on my time. Sorry for the sparseness of my record keeping. I really do want to get Jeff's birth in here, but I am a very busy mom taking care of the babies, two in diapers and tandem nursing makes for one busy mom. I attended a party for a friend who just had a baby. The three-week-old looked great. In contrast 
Another woman had a babe a little younger than Jeff. He still has not regained his birth weight of six pounds. I almost felt guilty as we sat there. Jeff has doubled his birth weight, was all smiles and coos, and nursed contentedly during the party. I've been feeling somewhat depressed. I weighed myself at King Supers. I weigh 240 pounds. I have mouth sores, dark circles under my eyes. So tired, I can hardly think. The girls have been nutty these past weeks, disobedient and mouthy with all of the company and stress. So I have felt like my efforts have been in vain. Yesterday was sobering for me as I watched this intelligent young woman talk about four-hour breastfeeding schedules and getting back into her old clothes. Her little son lay half dead in her lap, skin and bones in her arms. It jolted me. Suddenly, I felt the varying feelings of pride and guilt, happiness and justification, and also intense sorrow for this little boy to have such a rough start. I know it's wrong to compare, and I shouldn't use my children to up my own ego, but it was definitely mind-expanding to have had this experience in the midst of my quiet crisis of feeling fat and dumpy and overwhelmed. Uh, the next entry was July 3rd, 1994. I had the opportunity to teach a class this summer, but I don't think I will. I'm still too busy with baby, and it's not getting any easier. Harder, in fact. Paul's been very busy with work and being the young men's president at church. Jeff pretty much sleeps when he wants wants to, and I only get to sleep when I get to. So it's hard. Some days I feel like the worst mother in the world. I wish I had some good friend to talk to. They keep moving away every time we get close. Uh, another entry about a month later, July 31st, 1994. I've had a different perspective on my psychosis lately. I read a talk by Patricia Holland. She said, almost invariably, after we are tried, revelation follows. That hit me like few things this year in my studies. I've thought about the visions and dreams I've experienced how they came moment upon moment in the hospital during those long weeks and how so many of them have come true. The most important dream was of health. I was promised in a priesthood blessing that I would have a complete and full recovery. I have and lately have achieved a level of health I thought would be impossible. Please note, I was not talking about being trim and thin in this entry. Rather, I meant overall health, especially in regards to allergies, which had plagued me for so many years, as well as the way I treated those maladies that were chronic in my body and my mind. Right before we conceived Jeff, I read Carol Truman's book, Feelings Buried Alive Never Die. It came into my life at the right moment, and as I began utilizing the script in my daily life, a huge shift occurred in my health. I felt that I had reached a plateau with my focus of mostly emotion, physical healing, with nutrition and herbs, and that it was time to start working on my emotional body more intently. The first week I had Carol's book in my life, I did the script about 200 times for every malady I could ever remember having. The next week, we conceived Jeff, and I feel, I feel clearing out my subconscious like that contributed to his personality, which was marked, which is marked by serenity and calm an unbridled joy in living. I've continued to use Carol's tool in my day-to-day -day life for the past six years, 
and would highly encourage all to buy and use her book. I will not take the time to describe her methods as they are freely available, but I will say that the script gives you the opportunity to heal your subconscious thoughts without paying a professional a hundred bucks an hour to help you. Boy, how that has changed. This was written in the nineties. It's now 300, 400 bucks an hour to work with a therapist. Back to the book. Another note clarifying by what I meant, what I meant by visions and dreams in the July 31st entry. When the mind is in a psychotic manic state, thoughts get racing. The mind becomes like a thousand television screens and it feels like it is going 100 miles an hour. During my hospital stay, I had little to occupy me except talking with the other patients, reading my scriptures and reading a copy of Les Miserables that my mom had given me. Many, many times in this manic state, I had flashes of my future life. At the time of my release from the hospital and in the year of being medicated against my will, I believed the lie that all of my thoughts, feelings, and visions were the result of a frenzied mind. In the 10 years that have elapsed, I have learned that many of the pictures that I saw so vividly on the stage of my mind were in fact reality, just not current reality, but instead future reality. I think I should insert here that different people have different responses to me telling them that I had experienced a psychotic break with reality. People who have deep trust in psychiatry are always alarmed and concerned and are you on medications? How long have you been on medications? They're all in with the psychiatric definition of this. When I told my friend Janine Parati Baker that I had had a break with reality when I was 21, with her Native American background and heritage, she started to treat me like a goddess. <laughs> it was actually kind of fun seeing her um, reverence for someone having this experience. In her culture, they they do things to try and have someone experience that by fasting and getting in their their huts and sweating and you know all the things they do i don't even know the details i know that they quite often will have a psychotic episode or what's termed a psychotic episode they don't call it that they call it a vision quest but um i've often thought about janine's response and thought well you know in my faith there there's church of jesus christ of latter-day saints there's a real you know push to use the medical profession for everything it's right there on their their website but um these other cultures other heritage you know they have a different take on things and let's just say i like i like janine's interpretation of what happened to me more than what psychiatry had to say i i will say that i did have some wonderful experiences with various doctors and therapists and professionals during my various hospitalizations and therapy sessions. It's not all a wash and I'm not saying it is, but you know, it was, it was interesting to say the least back to my book, <clears throat> a few themes that kept popping up. And again, this is when I was in this altered state, a few themes that kept popping up nuclear war for some unexplained reason. This is a common theme of psychotic women. I saw famine all over the world and the complete collapse of the government in America. I also saw my total restoration of health and well-being. I saw Satan loving every minute of his time to rule and reign on earth. I actually felt his joy in the fact that I was locked up in suffering. Just before the police found me in the street, the day before I was hospitalized, I saw Satan walking towards me, 
with thousands of his angels behind him. I confronted him, overcame my fears, raised my right arm to the square, and in the name of Jesus, I cast him out of the town and he left. I take the risk of sharing these things because I know it will be important and validating to those women who've experienced what I have. And I should say men have these too. It's not just women, but I'm specifically talking about uh, women who experience this postpartum after they've had a baby. I'm not saying that all thoughts and feelings during psychosis are pure inspiration and 100% reality. But I think the psychiatric profession, which does not acknowledge the supernatural world, has drugged many people into forgetting their spiritual lives, their spiritual realities, and denying the fact that our world is just one dimension of a multi-dimensional universe. During psychosis, I believe I was on a different frequency than I had been before. I think certain parts of my brain opened up and others shut down. I noticed in the hospital that my singing and piano playing abilities were greatly increased, and I could remember songs I hadn't played for years. When I started on the meds, I lost the ability to remember things well and was very tired and confused. I think I should insert here that over the last nine, ten years that I've been healing from the ritual abuse I experienced as a child, uh, Fiona Barnett, my friend in Australia, taught me that when someone experiences a psychosis or a mania where they're, they're out of the realm of reality and they, they're having this altered experience, it is in fact a sign that the subconscious mind is attempting to connect past trauma with the conscious mind. I didn't understand that when I was writing my book back in the day, but I believe it now. And I believe those of us who are programmed by uh, ritual abusers using the, the techniques of trauma to get mind controlled over someone, um, this was our attempt to try and heal at least the first toddling steps to healing, which quite often happen at the age of 21. There's an opening up when, when people are 15, they often will experience uh, a suicidal episode. And I did. And then at 21, there will be sometimes a, they'll, they'll call it a psychotic break or a mania, or sometimes they'll even call it a schizophrenia episode, schizophrenic episode where they're just, they're just altered. And they tend to start ranting and raving about the CIA and white vans coming at us with their drugs, which quite frankly, is not far off from what has been happening for these last few years. But um, we'll leave that topic for another day. Um, and then when they're adults, when they're mature, when they're in a supportive and loving relationship, like I've experienced with my husband, we've been married for 33 years, quite often something will happen that will trigger them to start remembering in detail what happened to them. And for that, for me, that was when I was 33 and my brother died and it triggered my memories to start coming back. And it's been a 20 year long process of me piecing together what happened to me when I was a child, what happened to my brother. He died of a drug overdose. He's part of the opioid deaths. And, um, you know, I've been piecing it all together and it, the things that happened to me, yes, they can cause these, these mental problems. So, um, I didn't know that when I wrote my book. Anyway, back to the book. Uh, I think the psychiatric profession, which does not acknowledge the supernatural world, 
has drugged many people into forgetting their spiritual lives, their spiritual realities, and denying the fact that our world is just one dimension of a multidimensional universe. During psychosis, I believe I was on a different frequency than I had been before. I think certain parts of my brain opened up and others shut down. I noticed in the hospital that my singing and piano playing abilities were greatly increased, and I could remember songs that I hadn't. When I started on the meds, I lost the ability to remember things well and was very tired and confused. Confronting Satan was the most frightening thing I have ever done. From it, I learned that he cannot stay when we command him to leave in the name of Jesus. He and his legions not only left, they ran. Whoosh. Gone. Many times I have wondered if that experience was real or not. As I have pondered it, I believe that it was real. The fasting I had done before this experience and the month of very little sleep combined to open up my mind to things beyond current reality. Even if the experience was caused by pure psychosis, it was as real to me as anything I have ever felt. The unfortunate side to all of this was the way the psychiatric profession chalked my spiritual battles up as a complete mental illness. As an illustration of how my psychiatrist felt about my spirituality, when I began taking the lithium and stelazine, I had two additional weeks in the hospital before they let me go home. During that time, I felt evil all around me, in my thoughts, my dreams, little voices in my mind telling me to kill myself. I mentioned this to my doctor during a psychotherapy session, and he immediately upped my dose of stelazine. Instead of any acknowledgement that what I was feeling might be real and remedied through spiritual efforts, he just took my experience and used it as an excuse to drug me more. Sad, so sad to think about the untold millions who have also had their spirituality drugged away by the psychiatrist's pills. The supernatural world is real. And until the psychiatrist acknowledge that and recognize that spiritual warfare is frightening, can terrify individuals into insanity, and can be fought off with the weapons of spiritual warfare, prayer, hymns, repentance, calling on the powers of heaven, and most especially, simply casting the evil away in Jesus' name, they will simply be treating symptoms of those who are under attack. Jesus spent a huge portion of his ministry casting out evil spirits. The modern world has embraced the tools of the psychiatrist, drugs, and hospitalizations. Even going so families so far as even going so far as to force families to commit to psychiatric wards, children and teens who are struggling emotionally. After I came off the meds, I started doing research on the history of the psychiatric profession. This quote from W. Cleon Skousen's book, The Naked Communist, was illuminating. In a chapter titled, The Future Task, under the section, Importance of the Psychological War, he writes, this is on page 258 to 262 of his book, The Naked Communist, the biggest mistake of the West has been allowing itself to drift into a state of mental stagnation, apathy, and inaction. In some circles, motivations of patriotism, loyalty, and the traditional dream of freedom for all men have been lying dormant or have been paralyzed by a new kind of strange thinking, 
Authorities say there is an urgent need for a revolutionary change in our state of mind. What is wrong with our state of mind? First and foremost, we have been thinking the way the communists want us to think. Our founding fathers would be alarmed to learn how confused many of our people have become over such fundamental problems as coexistence, disarmament, free trade, the United Nations, recognition of Red China, and a host of related problems. Instead of maintaining a state of intellectual vigilance, we have taken communist slogans as the major premises for too many of our conclusions. Let us go down a list of current strategic goals which the communists and their fellow travelers are seeking to achieve. These are all part of the campaign to soften America for the final takeover. It should be kept in mind that many loyal Americans are working for these same objectives because they are not aware that these objectives are designed to destroy us. Current communist goals. One, U.S. acceptance of coexistence as the only alternative to atomic war. Two, U.S. willingness to capitulate in preferences to engaging in atomic war. Three, develop the illusion that total disarmament by the United States would be a demonstration of moral strength. Four, permit free trade, free trade between all nations, regardless of communist affiliation and regardless of whether or not items could be used for war. I, I wish Joe Biden was listening to this right now. Five, extensions of long-term loans to Russia and Soviet satellites. Six, provide American aid to all nations regardless of communist domination. Seven, grant recognition of Red China, admission of Red China to the UN. Eight, set up East and West Germany as separate states in spite of Khrushchev's promise in 1955 to settle the Germany question by free elections under supervision of the UN. Nine, prolong the conference to ban at atomic tests because the U.S. has agreed to suspend tests as long as negotiations are in progress. Ten, allow all Soviet satellites individual representation in the U.N. Eleven, promote the U.N. as the only hope for mankind. If its charter is rewritten, demand that it be set up as a one-world government with its own independent armed forces. Some communist leaders believe the world can be taken over as easily by the UN as by Moscow. 12. Resist any attempt to outlaw the Communist Party. And honestly, people, that is the number one thing we need to do today. We need to outlaw the Communist Party. We need to get all the socialists out of our schools. We need to set up a loyalty test for our university professors. If you want to have the privilege of teaching our young people anything, you have to be a patriot. We will not allow you Marxists to brainwash our children anymore. This has to be done. It has to be done soon. Our children are just being seduced into this way of thinking. And for me as a patriot mom who homeschooled my kids, it has been the most noxious and evil and gut-wrenching part of allowing my children to go to high school and college. They've just been seduced into it and it's just maddening. 13, do away with loyalty oaths. 14, continue giving Russia access to the U.S. Patent Office. 15, can capture one or both of the political parties in the U.S. I can promise you people that has happened. 16, use technical decisions of the courts to weaken, weaken basic American institutions by claiming their activities violate 
civil rights. 17, get control of the schools. That has been done. This was written in the 60s, by the way. Use them as transmission belts for socialism and current communist propaganda. Soften the curriculum. Get control of teachers' associations. Put the party line in textbooks. Done, done, and done. And it needs to stop. It needs to be fixed. 18, gain control of all student newspapers. 19, use student riots to foment public protests against programs or organizations which are under communist attack. 20, infiltrate the press, get control of book review assignments, editorial writing, policymaking positions. 21, gain control of key positions in radio, TV, motion pictures. 22, continue discrediting American culture by degrading all forms of artistic expression. An American communist cell was told to eliminate all good sculpture from parks and buildings, substitute shapeless, awkward, and meaningless forms. 23, control art critics and directors of art museums. Our plan is to promote ugliness, repulsive, meaningless art. Eliminate 24, eliminate all laws governing obscenity by calling them censorship and a violation of free speech and free press. 25, break down cultural standards of morality by promoting pornography and obscenity in books, magazines, motion pictures, radio, and TV. Second, I need a drink. Twenty-six, present homosexuality, degeneracy, and promiscuity as normal, natural, healthy. Twenty-seven, infiltrate the churches and replace revealed religion with social religion. This has happened in my faith, and I've watched it with horror. When I watched my own prophet, President Nelson, talking about social justice, I wanted to puke. That is not to say that I do not support and sustain the prophet. I do. I love him. But to see this communist goal playing out in my own faith was definitely a sucker punch to my gut. Discredit the Bible and emphasize the need for intellectual maturity, which does not need a religious crutch. 28. Eliminate prayer or any phase of religious expression in the schools on the ground that it violates the principle of the separation of church and state. 29. Discredit the American Constitution by calling it inadequate, old-fashioned, out of step with modern needs, a hindrance to cooperation between nations on a worldwide basis. Coincidentally, I just saw a student group, some Eastern University, calling for the Constitution to be abolished. So we're there. 30. Discredit the American Founding Fathers. Present them as selfish aristocrats who had no concern for the common man. 31. Belittle all forms of American culture and discourage the teaching of American history on the ground that it was only a minor part of the big picture. Give more emphasis to Russian history since the communists took over. 32. Support any socialist movement to give centralized control over any part of the culture. Education, social agencies, welfare programs, mental health clinics, etc. 33. 
eliminate all laws or procedures which interfere with the operation of the communist, communist apparatus. 34. Eliminate the House Committee on Un-American Activities. 35. Discredit and eventually dismantle the FBI. Actually, I'd be, I'd be totally down with that at this point. 36. Infiltrate and gain control of more unions. 37. Infiltrate and gain control of big business. 38. Transfer some of the power of arrest from the police to social agencies. Treat all behavioral problems as psychiatric disorders, which no one but psychiatrists can understand or treat. 39. Dominate the psychiatric profession and use mental health laws as a means of gaining coercive control over those who oppose communist goals. 40. Discredit the family as an institution. Encourage promiscuity and easy divorce. 41. Emphasize the need to raise children away from the negative influence of parents. Attribute prejudices, mental blocks, and retarding of children to suppressive influence of parents. 42. Create the impression that violence and insurrection are legitimate aspects of the American tradition, that students and special interest groups should rise up and use united force to solve economic, political, or social problems. 43. Overthrow all colonial governments before Native populations are ready for self-government. 44. Internationalize the Panama Canal. 45. Repeal the Connolly Reservation so the U.S. cannot prevent the World Court from seizing jurisdiction over domestic problems. Give the World Court court jurisdiction over nations and individual states. Back to my book. I was only going to write the points relevant to the psychiatric profession, but I thought it might be helpful for you, the reader, to see all the goals together to get the big picture of what has been going on. Cleon Skousen wrote his book in 1962. It is interesting to me how many of these goals have been accomplished and how many are still completely relevant to our world today. I know it is likely that my use of the word communist and plot in the same sentence will most likely have the effect of others perceiving me as a nutcase, but it is important to understand that these ideas and beliefs have been carefully and systematically pushed into our brains by our interaction with society. As I have painstakingly deprogrammed my brain it has been interesting how my vision has cleared, and I have been able to spot elements of these communist goals in my own life. For this reason, it has been easy for me to embrace the principles of family sovereignty and freedom. I can't think of any more effective way to control and ruin society than to torture mothers during birth, drug them afterwards, and then convince them the children will be better off institutionalized in institutionalized care for the rest of their lives. And by institutions, I mean daycare centers and schools. When I first started to cleanse with Sunrider Foods in June of 1990, I started a support group for women with postpartum depression, mostly so I could connect with others who had been through what I had. We met in my home for a few months and then I held it at a local library. As I talked with these women, I quickly realized that they were mostly using me as a pseudo-psychologist and that we were all sitting around saying, I'm depressed. You depressed? Yeah. 
I'm depressed too. I guess we're all depressed. It was a downer for me. And I stopped the group because I was reeling more and more how much of what ailed me was physical and emotional. And my message of nutrition and exercise just didn't resonate with those who were already in a depressed place. They had already mostly been drugged and just weren't in a proactive place to change their eating habits and work on their physical bodies. I taught a childbirth class around this time with four very proactive couples who were carefully educating themselves on birth, parenting, and preparing for the work that is motherhood and fatherhood. I realized that sharing my story with these types of couples was probably the best way to help prevent postpartum emotional illness. And so I started on a campaign to educate other childbirth teachers and those who worked with pregnant women, my message of preventing emotional illness through nutrition. I learned that not all groups were open to my message and was actually fired (laughs) from several volunteer positions because of my not being willing to change my message. That was so funny the day that a gal from depression after delivery which I'd been a phone contact support. My husband and I both for five years talking to moms and dads when they looked for some peer support, you know, had conversations with people from all over the country. And she called me and fired me. Who fires a freaking volunteer? It was so funny. Anyway, here's a few more postpartum journal entries to finish up this chapter. It was a very long chapter. So thanks for sticking with me. This next entry was from July 31st, 1994. The most important dream was of health. I was promised in a priesthood blessing that I would have a complete and full recovery. I have, and lately have achieved a level of health I thought would be impossible. For for example, no antihistamines in years, no problems nursing, two healthy children since the psychosis, an energy level that amazes my friends, no sore throats, swollen glands, etc., increased singing ability, mental clarity, and sharpness, and on and on, and only brightness and health for the future. Surely he answered my long ago prayer. Father, help me to serve by helping me to be healthy. He has opened up treasures of knowledge, and I feel greatly blessed. These are the lessons I learned from Jeff's pregnancy, labor, and birth. Nursing through a pregnancy is possible, but extra attention should be given to nutrition and rest. By the time Jeff was born, I was consuming 4,000 calories, a gallon of water, and 150 grams of protein each day. It helped to think like I was having twins. And I read the Having Twins book by Elizabeth Noble to help me get the calorie amounts and protein levels for a twin pregnancy. Tandem nursing is possible and can help the older baby transition to be the big sister brother. Allison was very greatly affected by seeing Jeff emerge from my body. And after the birth, she jumped up on the table and nursed for a few minutes while Jeff was weighed, etc. Some of my happiest moments these past two years have been nursing both babies while they held each other's hands. And I, I need to insert here that those two are still just the best of friends. In fact, Allie's flying out on Saturday to help him after his surgery. And, um, I've heard from other moms who tandem nurse that the tandem babies do have a special relationship as they go forward and, and they are each other's best friends. It is okay to fire your caregiver before or during the birth. I recommend before as that negative energy really 
affected my labor and slowed it down. Lactation specialists will tell you to always nurse the, the newborn first and then nurse the toddler if you're going to tandem nurse. I disagree with this advice as the richer milk is in the hind milk. And if you follow that advice, you may be giving all the skim milk to the newborn and all the rich creamy milk to the toddler. I just let Allison nurse when she needed to. And most often I nursed them together and figured if I just kept eating, especially foods high in essential fatty acids, it would all work out in the end. The first time Allison nursed after my milk came in, she jumped up, clasped her hands together and yelled, the milk is back. Then she ran down the hall yelling in a sing-song voice, the milk is back, the milk is back. Joy, joy, joy. The first year with three children is that hardest year in family life, especially if all three are under five. For the parents, this year is a marathon of cooking, shopping, dishes, laundry, napping, and deep sleep whenever it can be achieved. We had the added stress of purchasing our first home, a beautiful new townhouse in Louisville, Colorado, that we watched be built from the ground up. Our stress of becoming home buyers was multiplied when Paul started experiencing symptoms of panic and anxiety a few days after we signed the mortgage. There are some women who can successfully tandem nurse without gaining a boatload of weight. I am not one of them. Many, many times I would wake in the middle of the night ravenously hungry and go eat a huge plate of food. My favorite snack was a cold plate of sweet potatoes and brown rice. This was the year that I finally threw out my scale and just settled into a routine of shopping, cooking, eating, nursing, napping, reading, and homeschooling Shelly. I walked and did yoga and enjoyed a very satisfying, intimate life with my husband, but I continued to gain the weight and soon ballooned up to 265 pounds. I looked like a Buddha. I was rejected on many levels for this obesity by friends, family, and strangers. But as I said, this fatness was very different than weighing 250 pounds when I was depressed. I experienced normal depression in my day-to-day life during that year. And since, I really believed my fat was serving a purpose and perhaps was my subconscious way of rejecting society's values and distancing myself from the perfectionism that was so much a part of my mental illness. I also had a picture in my mind of a Taiwanese lady I knew who I had known as a child. She was a very confident young mother and would breastfeed her sons in church and had a beautiful singing voice, a strong, deep alto that resonated throughout the chapel. Her sons never had runny noses and they were the sweetest babies. And she was also extremely fat. I remembered reading somewhere that the Oriental cultures considered fat as a sign of beauty and health. This mother was to me the picture of strength and vibrant health compared to the anemic, skinny American women I knew who were dropping babies every year. I give a lot of credit to my sweet husband that he never put me down for being so large. He has always encouraged me and loved me and just patiently waited for me to heal. I doubt I could have healed without his loving support. I conceived Andrew while tandem nursing Allison and Jeff. The fact that I remained pregnant was a testimony to me of the way that I had been eating. Many women cannot even support one baby, and I was supporting two through breast milk and one in the womb. I believe my regeneration story is valuable 
for the reason that I was in that place of terrible physical and emotional illness and in a relatively short time was able to get to the place of abundant reproductive health. All women can achieve this if it is the desire of their heart and they have some good information. Here's some tips from learned by nurturing Jeff. Keep your day-to-day life simple and your when your little ones are babies. Listen to your bodies. If you feel overwhelmed when someone asks you to commit to something, such as a church committee or an act of service outside your home or anything that could undermine your calm home life, say no. It is a common fact in the farming world that when cows become frightened or stressed, the milk stops flowing or chickens stop laying their eggs or on and on. Right now, we have the luxury that if our milk stops flowing, we can head to the local grocery store and buy some milk for our babies that they can live on. In the future, while we are going through the time of sorrows that the Savior so eloquently describes in Matthew 24 and 25 as being particularly hard on mothers, we may not have the backup of grocery stores, grocery grocery shelves lined with bottles and cow's milk. We may not even have what our great-grandmothers used when the milk dried up. Most communities had women who would hire out as wet nurses and could take over the task of feeding the baby. Mormon Relief Society presidents who have never breastfed are notorious for making young mommies feel guilty that they are not serving more. The smartest thing I did after Jeff was born was get released from all my church callings, volunteer work, and stay home. It was also great to homeschool because that kept our home life very simple. And I was free from the temptation of volunteering in the school. Don't feel guilty for saying no. If anyone tries to guilt trip you into doing something you don't feel good about, I'm doing the most important work on the planet and don't have the time or the energy to get involved in something that will distract me from that work. You tell them to bug off. Well, you don't have to tell them to bug off, but you get the idea. Have fun. I tried every day to get all three of my children laughing these really big belly laughs for an extended period of time. I knew this would strengthen all of our immune systems and blow the cobwebs of depression out of our home. I should insert here that my son, Jeff, the one who's having the surgery, whose birth I'm describing today, um, his wife just gave birth to their second child, who's a little, little boy. And that child has the most delightful belly laugh of any baby I have ever heard. And so this pattern of, you know, the laugh goes on and it's been so joyful to hear my grandson's laugh because it's so reminiscent of this, this father of his who used to laugh just the same way. Sing, dance, and play. The final year in our little apartment is just memories of all of us singing while dad played the guitar, lullabies late at night, dancing to the hokey pokey and hours and hours at the park. We also took long walks around the Twin Lakes that were near our home in Boulder, and occasionally we drove to downtown Boulder to try out new parks. Hang out with others who are attempting true attachment parenting. It is helpful to have friends who understand a more child-centered life. Many parents are brainwashed into neglecting their children's true needs. Let them cry it out parenting, etc., I am not a believer in censorship, but I think that Baby Wise book should be banned 
and ceremonial burning should be held in every community. And the idiot who wrote it should be placed in a stockade for a few months of punishment for the pain and suffering he has caused in certain families who, has, who have adopted his insane advice. It is helpful to have friends who understand why all of the beds in the home are in the same room. You run around in your underwear half the day, and some days you don't even bother to get dressed. If you decide to attachment parent, be cautious whom you share your goofy ideas with. A few parents have had social services show up when they mention not immunizing, homeschool, or breastfeed a four-year-old in public. As a mother, the last thing you need is to have your neighbors and friends watching for any abnormality from mainstream society. This type of stress will affect your breast milk supply, cause stress in your marriage, and keep you from developing close friendships with people who may reject you if they understand every single view you have on parenting. I have many friends who I spend time with who have no idea. I am a birth activist, had a home birth, nursed my babies for three and four years. Find the things you have in common with others and just be a good friend. You don't have to convince every person you know that you are right on something in order for you to implement it in your life. You also don't have to poll your family and friends to ask them what they think about certain things like home birth, etc. before you do it. Just quietly live and love and serve and plant seeds of truth as you feel guided to share or if they ask. So many young couples have been fed the pap of the mainstream for so long, they really think they are doing a great job when they buy bottle feed, let the baby cry at night, and put the newborn into the care of others. This is all they hear, so why not implement these practices? You can have a great influence on these friends by not judging the choices made and just quietly nurturing your babies and setting a good example of loving, gentle parenting. That is the end of, end of the chapter on my son, Jeff. He's been in surgery now for two, maybe three hours. I hope it's going well. He said it would be three to four hours. This has given me a wonderful reprieve from sitting here uh, worrying, which I don't do very often, but this is his first surgery, and everybody knows how I feel about the medical profession. I, I'm praying for the doctors, praying that it goes perfectly and that he's... He's okay. He's fine. He's perfect. It has been nice to um, to remind myself of what I wrote back in the day. This is, this is some good, solid stuff. And if you want to read a really great book uh, beyond my book, Mother's Journey, go get Cleon Skousen's Naked Communist. He designed it to be a textbook for high schoolers. So he wrote it very simply. But the issues he wrote back in 1963... 60 years later, they're absolutely relevant to what we are experiencing right now. And um, in a way, if we were to put the family back up on its pedestal and parenting as the noble end um, for all people of goodwill, uh, I think our young people would start to embrace becoming parents instead of what they're doing now, which is losing themselves in raising animals and lost in um, relationships that don't produce children. And I think it's helpful for them to heal here that this, 
This was literally something that was designed to seduce them into. Once they realize that they've been had, uh, it can, it's a shakeup for them to realize that. But it's also been a way for many young people to say, okay, I'm done with that. Time for me to move on and, and live. I can promise you, those, those of you who are listening, if you want to be happy, really happy, find someone to love and have a couple of kids. There is nothing like the joy you feel when you, when you hear your baby say, mom, dad, for the first time. It's just the most joyful thing. So thanks for stopping by. I know it's been a long one, but I really felt guided to share this today. And I hope you are having a wonderful day.